On October 14, 2007, Episode 1 of Keeping Up with the Kardashians premiered on E! Welcome to my family. I'm Kim Kardashian. The princess is in the building! Reality TV had been around long enough to have entered a sort of middle period. What had started out as novelty competition shows like Survivor in 2000 and Fear Factor in 2001... Oh, 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 Victoria, they're going to lose the race for us. What, John, please? Victoria, we're going to lose. Okay, okay. Hurry up. John, this is dead weight. Had moved on to talent competitions like American Idol in 2002. And into a genre that bore an eerie resemblance to the scripted dramas or comedies that American audiences had long loved. There was Laguna Beach in 2004 and its spin-off The Hills in 2006, both of which occupied the teen drama niche. And audiences really went crazy for reality's version of sitcoms, The Simple Life in 2003, The Girls Next Door in 2005, and the one that started it all, The Osbournes, which premiered in 2002. Nothing on your face pierced Kelly, please. It leaves a hole. You'll get older and you'll well, have a fucking hole in your face. Please don't have a tattoo because... I already have a tattoo, Dad. Oh. Elliot Goldberg, co-creator of Keeping Up with the Kardashians, told me that Ryan Seacrest Productions was looking for its own version of the Osbournes to hand to E. The now iconic Calabasas family seemed to fit the bill. We need a family. Thinking about the Osbournes, really and thinking about how just audacious that show was. And if we could find a family that was, you know, outrageous and funny and real, and uh, then we could have a good chance. Episode one of The Kardashians is a Rosetta Stone document with hints of all that is to come over the next 14 years. Chris talks about how big Kim's butt is. Prepubescent Kylie pole dances in front of the creator of the Pussycat Dolls. Scott Disick is confronted from the very beginning for being an unsuitable partner. And Kim's recent sex tape is discussed on The Tyra Banks Show. The sister fights are constant, as they would be for the next decade and a half. Oh, my God. If anything happens to my dress, I'm literally going to strangle her and beat her with a bat. I won't lie. I have a great fondness for the early years of the Kardashians. I'm also from a family of eight, and I think the early episodes capture very hilariously the true lives of sisters. The Kardashian girls, especially in those early seasons, are crazy about each other and also physically fought each other well into their 30s. My favorite moment? When Kim slugs Chloe, first with a handbag, then her fists, in a fight that starts over repairs for Kim's Bentley. Don't be f- Rude. Are you kidding me? I Stop. swear to God. Stop. Don't be what are you doing? Thing on me. I'll hurt you. Don't do that. Stop. Oh, my God. But true to the sitcom format, no matter the shenanigans that the family got up to, of which there were many, this is a case for the FBI. I just got off the phone. Every episode ended with a heartwarming moment. Elliot called it a Walton's moment after the 1970s show about a family. It's there on that very first 2007 episode. The camera pulls out from the happy home into a chirping night, and there's a voiceover of Kim saying, Get your off of me. You're such a whore. (laughs) Over the past 14 years, 
the family has lived as close to a Truman Show experience as possible. That little girl who pole danced for the Pussycat Dolls lady is now a mom and a lip kit billionaire. America has watched that family give birth, get cheated on, a lot, get wildly rich, get robbed, and get married, many times over. From out of nowhere, well, okay, not nowhere, we'll talk about that, Kim Kardashian became the definitive reality star and a bridge from the 2000s to the 2010s. The A-list was fading into the background. Reality culture was taking over the blogs and tabloids, and soon enough, the monoculture would die a messy, millennial pink-stained death on Instagram. Reality increased America's fame obsession even more. It gave a lot of power to characters who serious people said were silly. It took away the need for media gatekeepers, helping stars fuel their images, their businesses, and their reach into all parts of society, since celebrity coverage had become a default part of mainstream news. What reality TV needed to work was only the appearance of a thing, not the thing itself. It needed the appearance of happiness, not the real emotion. The trappings of wealth, if not the actual healthy balance sheets. He tried to outthink me, and nobody outthinks me. Nobody. I guess what I'm saying here is that reality TV screwed with the idea of what's true and what's not. It started off silly, but then, well, I covered politics during the Trump years. You'd be surprised how quickly things you once thought were solid can erode, and how that erosion can begin in corners that serious people might not consider important. From The Ringer, I'm Claire Malone, and this is Just Like Us, the tabloids that changed America. This episode is brought to you by eBay Authenticity Guarantee. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem. Sneakers and streetwear so fresh, every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. Not just any experts, specialized experts, real people who love this stuff, with real hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue checkmark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder, or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay authenticity guarantee, you can trust that feeling of reels always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. On May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. They stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. The Kardashians, of course, stand on the shoulders of their reality show forefathers. While the family came to dominate tabloid coverage in the 2010s, dragging tabloid-loving America along with them onto new platforms, they were hardly the first to realize the power that celebrity media could bring them. 
Arguably, this guy perfected that. I was famous for, I guess, being what the term used to be called a fame whore, which is now just called trying to be famous, period. You know who this is. Or at least you do if you're a 30-something like me. My college group text got very excited when they heard I was talking to him. My name is Spencer Pratt. Spencer, who was the villain on MTV's The Hills, was all over the tabloids for a big chunk of the 2000s. Unless you think it all sort of just happened, Spencer has made it his recent life's work to tell you that it very much did not just fall into his lap. Honestly, he's maybe the most incisive person I talked to for this series when it came to the postmodern idea of celebrity. It's very possible that Spencer should be teaching an American Studies course somewhere. For right now, he's living in domestic bliss, selling crystals online. Like all good prodigies, Spencer's learning and ambition started young. People tell me they remember at Call Me Q in summer school in Malibu when I was maybe 16 or 17. I used to tell everyone, like, I would get a Us Weekly and I would show people, like, I'm going to be on the cover of Us Weekly. Like, just watch. So I don't remember this, but I have had multiple people tell me this. So I don't know if it was the actual, you know, it was the energy of Us Weekly back then. Like... When I was in, maybe it's because my mom bought every tabloid, like always, including the National Enquirer. Like, I grew up with tabloids, so to me, it's like, my mom's buying these. These are in the house. Like the godmother of reality TV, Paris Hilton, Spencer grew up as a precocious, knowing L.A. kid. He went to Crossroads, the Santa Monica school that's famous for its famous people. Kate Hudson, Jack Black, and Jonah Hill are some of its alums. Ronnie James attended for a while until he left for a better basketball school. My goal in life, I always wanted to be like uh, like a movie director, a producer, a studio executive, or an agent. Like going to Crossroads, that's, those were the coolest dads. They're the ones on the private jets. They were the ones doing the big movie premieres. You know, being actually famous, you know, like some of my best friend's parents were Oscar winners. Rarified air in which to grow up. It's probably important to point out that the most successful reality stars, people like Paris, Spencer, and Kim, were Hollywood-adjacent kids with parents who had hanger-on status with celebs. These people were in on the genius of famous for being famous long before the rest of the country. It was all show business. And as The Osbournes was a lodestar show for development executives like Elliot Goldberg, so it was for young Spencer Pratt. I like mansions and, you know, people with British accents. And so I read that they got a $20 million deal, like $5 million each. And I was like, oh, my God, people are making this type of money in reality TV. So I was like, all this show is really, in my head, was a mansion and a dad yelling at the accent. I was like, I know a way bigger mansion with a dad that yells way more. So I called my friend Brody and I was like, hey, can I come film a reality show about you? And he's like, haha, sure. That friend was Brody Jenner, as in the son of Caitlyn Jenner. Also, Kim Kardashian's stepbrother and the stepson to Grammy-winning producer David Foster, who was the future husband to Catherine McPhee and Yolanda Hadid, and future stepfather to Gigi and Bella Hadid. Los Angeles is an extremely small town. And this is without even mentioning that Brody Jenner's mom, Linda Thompson, was Elvis's girlfriend for a long time. Anyhow, 
Spencer took a leave of absence from USC and started filming a show that he'd eventually sell to Fox called The Princes of Malibu. The show premiered in 2005 and lasted one short season, and mostly involved David Foster yelling at Brody and Brandon Jenner as they rode various motorized vehicles through vast expanses of private lawn. Most grown children eventually move away from home. My stepsons did. But then they came back. What, do you think I should be happy about this? They sleep till noon. They don't have jobs. They spend my money and they wreck all my stuff. Oh, yeah. And Spencer is on the show, too. And when I say they, I'm including their Weasley friend, Spencer. (laughs) Give me that. Don't touch my... You are behind this. Networks were taking a lot of chances on shows like this, trying to find the next big Osbournes-like hit. Reality TV was pretty cheap to make, so it wasn't too big of a deal to put shows like this into production. When the writer's strike of 2007-2008 happened, reality got a huge boost thanks to that inexpensiveness and relative ease of production, a shift that probably changed the TV landscape forever. Sadly, The Princes of Malibu was not long for this world. Yeah, it was only two episodes because, shout out Linda Thompson, filed for divorce the morning after the first episode aired, which isn't really good for, you know, the longevity of a show. But the seeds of reality fame were planted for Spencer. By the way, David Foster would go on to star as a hubby on The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills with his next wife. Spencer says that while he didn't really want to be in front of the camera at first, it was Foster who convinced him to play a certain role on the show. David Foster told me at the time, Simon Cowell was just like popping. And he's like, you need to be like Simon Cowell. He's like, and he put me, but David Foster sent me down the wrong freaking road because the difference between me and Simon Cowell and Mr. Foster is Simon Cowell's a villain for like a reason because he's like, you know, keeping it 100 and telling people like, don't waste your time. Like, Like, there's a logic for him being just like a jerk or whatever. You can't just be like, telling a 20-year-old kid, like, be a jerk, like, Simon Cowell is like, oh, okay. Spencer is a little salty. His fame has had huge ups and downs. But he still did okay for himself. From the jump, I had already had that, like, the villain gets the check mindset. Fast forward a year or so. Spencer made his Hills debut as the villain. The show followed protagonist Lauren Conrad, a privileged headband wearer from Laguna Beach, California, as she tried to make it in L.A.'s fashion world and famously did not go to Paris. It was huge. The show was a successor to Laguna Beach, which Hills creator Adam DeVillo told me had been inspired by the hit Fox drama The O.C. The Hills was supposed to be a reality TV version of Melrose Place. That mimicry of fictional TV shows helped set the docu-soap series apart. And it confused audiences about what exactly they were watching. DeVillo told me he saw this from the very first focus group reaction to the pilot of Laguna Beach. You can just walk from room to room to room to see how everyone's reacting to something. And I'll never forget because I was, I was with the woman who was running the session. And the people at the end of the episode, most of the rooms were all fighting. Fighting about whether the show was real, whether it wasn't real, 
And half the group was like, of course, this is real. She's in love with him. You could tell. And other groups, the other side was like, bullshit. There's no way this is real. This is fake. Everyone's screaming at each other. And I looked at the woman and I was like, oh my God, this is awful. I was like, this is like not what we wanted at all. You just wanted everybody just to like love the show. And she's like, no, I don't think you understand. She's like, you have a huge hit on your hands. She was like, we do not get reactions like this on anything that we ever test. And so I think from that moment on, that's kind of how I think, always picture people perceiving it, right? It's like they're trying to figure out if it's real, if it's not real. On the Hills, Lauren and Brody Jenner wound up dating. I hope you can hear the air quotes here. And Heidi Montag was her best friend and sidekick. Heidi worked as a club promoter, and a lot of the show was the girls dressed in going out tops, talking or yelling at each other at various Hollywood night spots, while the audience breathlessly read the subcaptions. Spencer was portrayed as the asshole boyfriend, who was the reason why Lauren and Heidi's friendship ended. Spencer was genuinely Heidi's real-life boyfriend. They're still together and married with a son 16 years later. But he was also very into getting them famous and using the tabloids to help himself make money. In fact, the thought had dawned on Spencer that he could use his connections in the Hollywood scene to make some extra cash. And then it hit me that um, Kristen Cavallari had just started dating Nick Lachey, and I had the only photo of it, and or my buddy did, or his sister did, so I called Us Weekly. Okay, remember Peter Grossman, the Us Weekly photo editor? In my role as uh, the guy that talks to members of the public, uh, I took a call one day from someone who swore to me that he was going to get a picture of the two of them. Uh, How much is it worth? How much is it worth if I get a picture of the two of them together? He was very excited. And I said, how much would I get? And they're like, oh my God, maybe it was $10,000 or whatever. I don't even think I took a cut. I think it was just to like get in the game of like, I can get this stuff. Of course, he had no idea of the market for photos. Um, So I was able to get it for, you know, a decent discount. You know, now this is right in when The Hills is airing and he's like, You know, do you have any photos of, like, you guys? Like, I can get you guys in. Peter Grossman and Spencer had an incredibly close relationship that ended up being very profitable for both Spencer and the magazine. If you look at Us Weekly covers from that era, Spidey, as Spencer and Heidi came to be known, are all over it. So Heidi's this best-selling Us Weekly cover before in history. I forget, it was... I have it on the wall here framed. It was, I I think it was, I was betrayed by Spencer. Or no, maybe it was revenge plastic surgery. Peter would know. I asked Peter. He thought it might be a late 2007 issue featuring Heidi with the headline, Why I Called Off My Wedding. Whichever cover it was, Hollywood kid Spencer was in on the joke that he was ruining Heidi's life. Meta. That revenge plastic surgery cover came towards the end of 2007, and while the covers of Us Weekly are still mostly filled with A-list movie star faces that year, you can see the transition to reality TV starting to happen. Bachelorette Trista has a couple of covers. Lauren Conrad gets in there, too. 2008 has about the same mix, but by 2009, there's a seven-week straight run of John and Kate Gosselin covers. This might be a trickle-down effect of the 2007 and 8 writer's strike. Reality stars were populating TV. 
not actors. So the idea of who was a celebrity shifted along with that. By 2010, Us Weekly covers are a lot of Kardashians, Teen Mom, Jersey Shore, the Bachelor drama of Jake and Vienna, the New York Housewives, more Spidey, and the Girls Next Door. And in retrospect, creepy look at the sad lives of Hugh Hefner's girlfriends. Jen Peros, the former Us Weekly reporter and later editor-in-chief, who we talked to a few episodes ago, actually brought up that long John and Kate cover run as an example of when things really started to shift in the publishing world. What a cover was really based on was newsstand sales. And that was, again, before the heyday of digital, where, you know, people were just constantly refreshing SEO numbers and seeing what numbers and articles charted that day. Um, It was all based on newsstand sales and what sold the best. The public might have loved the reality stars, but some insiders like Mara Reinstein, the longtime Us Weekly reporter we talked to on episode one, absolutely hated the shift. Reality stars to me are not real stars. I loved writing about actual movie stars and the fun things that they did and the getting caught up in the glamour of it. Mara told me she didn't get the fascination with big families, a la John and Kate plus eight. Who knows? Maybe Janice Min felt the same way. Janice didn't speak to me on the record for this series, but she left Us Weekly in the summer of 2009, right around the time when the tabloids transition away from movie star coverage was happening. She became the editorial director of The Hollywood Reporter in 2010. In 2009, when the Kardashians really hit and Teen Mom really hit, things were going in a different direction and the Real Housewives hit. And and more and more reality stars were being put on the cover. This also dovetailed with the rise of social media and that celebrities were controlling the narrative and the, just the glamour was gone and there was no fun cultural zeitgeist about Us Weekly anymore. I was deeply unhappy. As much as people like Mara were unhappy, what was true was that reality stars made content really easy for the tabloids to gin up. These people wanted to be covered. And even though, as Jen Peros told me, they could be a lot more unpleasant to deal with than A-listers, who were on their best behavior with reporters, reality people played the game and helped magazines churn out stories. Adam DeVillo told me that the Hills executives were thrilled to have help keeping their shows and stars in the limelight. The tabloids to us was always like a kind of like an ancillary product to the show, right? We would only be up for a certain amount of months, right, of following these kids around. And so when we weren't up, the, the Us Weeklies and the in-touches of the world were continually staying with them. So I think for us, it was very nice to have that, to have them bridge the gap. Davillo's current hit show, Selling Sunset, certainly uses the new version of tabloid press, its star's own social media accounts, to keep interest brewing even when the show isn't in season. By the way, some people at Us Weekly definitely were enjoying the reality era. Peter Grossman was actually with Spidey when they eloped and took their wedding video. Spencer told me he thinks of Peter as the Jedi of fame. He was better than a publicist. Like, all all due respect, at the time, once we got famous, we had Brad Pitt's publicist. And it's like, I learned more from Peter 
and our paparazzi agency than I ever did from like the big BWR firm that we paid $6,000 a month for. Yeah, Spencer had a paparazzi agency that he worked with extensively. Remember on episode two, we talked about how celebs would sometimes arrange these sorts of deals, ones where they'd get a cut of photo sale profits? Spencer kind of took that to the next level. What do you, when you say you guys have like a 50-50 deal with Splash News, what so kind like, of numbers are we talking about? Oh, like, oh my God. In pre-Splash at PCN, I think we were making like a million a year in paparazzi photos. Wow. So, so like, a, yeah, yeah, like my deal with Us Weekly for four covers was 100000 a cover. Peter Grossman told me he doesn't recall the actual number, but remembers it was significant. The Kardashians reportedly have had a similar deal with Splash, and they also, like so many celebrities, sold things like baby photos. Here's Jared Shapiro, who was the editor of Life and Style at the time of the Kardashians' rise. $250,000, for the rights to the baby photos, the body after baby. That's Kourtney Kardashian posing in a bikini, you know, 45 days after giving birth, whatever it is. And then maybe the nursery. Spencer insists the Kardashians took their inspiration from him. Kim literally studied Spidey. I will take her to court if she'd like to. And when she's a lawyer, she can represent herself. She, like, go back to us at the our millions and millions milkshake appearance where we got a milkshake to Spidey and Kim K. Like, she's right there watching how Heidi and I, who were so famous at the time, are interacting with the paparazzi. Millions of milkshakes was this totally hilarious 2000s kitsch trend. It was a milkshake place run by a former paparazzi, Shiraz Hassan, who got stars like Spidey and Kim to come to a shop and make milkshakes. And there is indeed a video from 2009 of the Kardashian sisters and Spidey hanging out and taking photos in the shop. Heidi's sister Holly, oh my God, saw uh, Courtney in Hermes years ago. And she's like, yeah, and she literally told Heidi's sister, like, Scott and I do everything Heidi and Spencer do, and it's working so well, like, quote, unquote. So, like, I, you know, they're obviously 100 millionaire, almost billionaire, so good for them. They win. But, like, they stole our game and did it better, obviously. You might have noticed by now that all roads seem to lead to Kim Kardashian. I should note that reps for the Kardashians did not respond to a request for comment for this podcast. After the break, we'll get into how Kim and her family changed the game. This episode is brought to you by eBay Authenticity Guarantee. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem. Sneakers and streetwear are so fresh, every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. Not just any experts, specialized experts, real people who love this stuff, with real hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue checkmark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder, or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay authenticity guarantee, you can trust that feeling of reals always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important 
to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Do you know how Paris and Kim met? I think I do, but but tell me. <laughs> this is Elliot Mintz. I am a media consultant. I've been doing that for good, uh, I would say, 20, 25 years. Elliot is a real character, and he's been around big celebrities for decades. He was good friends with John Lennon and Yoko Ono and served as the family's press rep in the wake of John's murder. If you've watched The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, you might have seen Elliot dining with the ladies from time to time. Here's Lisa Rinna. Surreal. Ethereal. They're like this. If it was a dance, this would be the Elliot Mintz word dance. Hang on tightly. Let go lightly. He's very sweet. I don't know what the f*** he's talking about, really. Elliot is very sweet, and I wanted to talk to him because he was Paris Hilton's publicist back at the height of her mid-aughts fame. The two made sort of an odd couple. Elliot, who was in his 60s at the time, would always be formally dressed and in the background while Paris, well, did her thing. He was a big figure in the whole bimbo summit fiasco that we talked about a couple of episodes ago. Some people say he manufactured the photo setup, though Elliot insists it was just raining a lot that night and he was trying to get the women out of the wet. History will debate that point. Anyhow, Elliot was sort of a funny fixture of the scene, attending the young Hollywood parties at Paris's house. And there was the stripper pole that um, anybody who wanted to be silly could climb up and down it if they could. I took that trip a a few times just out of curiosity. Far more complex than most people would think. Uh, The lifting of the body, have you ever done that? I haven't. It looks hard. It's very hard. The Hiltons are family friends, hence the repping of Paris back when she was a wild 20-something. Elliot is a great pal of Paris's mother, Kathy. Again, if you're a reader of the tabloids, you might have seen him escorting her out of Craig's, wearing a tablecloth draped in a Grecian fashion. Kathy and I talked with each other two, three times a week, usually at around four in the morning. We both embraced the nighttime. You get the picture. 
Elliot is a whole thing, but very thoughtful about his own life in celebrity. Back to when Paris met Kim. It turns out I did know the broad strokes of how they met. Back before she was famous, Kim was redoing closets for celebrities, sort of an organizational guru type, and she came in to help tackle Paris's considerable closet. After about four or five months of Kim working for her, Elliot says Paris asked him to invite Kim to a night out. And she said, ask, just ask her if she'd like to come out with us tonight. We're on our way to Hyde or one of those nightclubs. And I gingerly approached her and I extended the invitation. She was somewhat taken back and she said, oh, uh, uh, you know, I never, I never go to nightclubs. I don't drink and I don't dance much. Um, I don't know if it'd be any fun. And besides, I didn't bring any clothes. Paris uh, found something in the closet. Kim wore it and uh, she joined us. And I remember in those beginning months, uh, she was always the most conservative, the most reserved. Um, she did not drink or use substances. She was level-headed and a great listener. She watched it all take place. She watched how Paris would get out of a car into a restaurant. Paris's interaction with paparazzi. Paris's interaction with people who would come up to the table. Um, she spent a long time watching before she started doing. The theme of Kim Kardashian as a careful student of fame keeps coming up. First with Spencer, now with Elliot. She may have been at the same places, but behaved somewhat differently. I always found her to be a little bit more cerebral. And just personality-wise, a more subdued person. Cerebral might not be the first word that jumps to mind for most people when Kim Kardashian is mentioned, but I think it's a useful counterpoint to her popular image. Kim and her family were deliberate about getting famous and using that fame for personal business gain. She would build on what Paris Hilton had done with her perfume and clothing businesses, what Spencer had done to court paparazzi attention and tabloid revenue streams. But back to the Kardashians' origin story. Right around the time Paris and Kim started hanging out, Elliot Goldberg and Ryan Seacrest Productions were looking for that big hit for E. The network had become something of a home for celebrity reality shows, and Elliot said there was a thirst from audiences just to peek inside Hollywood a little. You know, we're talking the early 2000s before 2005 or six, and there's no social media, there's no internet, barely. I mean, there's a little bit. But so the world was a lot more sort of naive and a little innocent in a way of what really celebrities were like. And so reality shows with celebrities, I think, were just a real drug for people to be able to see what there was, what was going on in their lives. The other dynamic that people seemed to love was family. Elliot was working with a casting director named Dina Katz and asked if she knew of any families that could potentially carry a reality show. She did. The Kardashians were friends. And it turns out that Kris Jenner and co. had already been trying to shop a reality show about the three Kardashian girls. Courtney Kardashian talked about that last year on the Emergency Contact podcast, the show hosted by Kardashian friend Simon Huck. 
This is as close to an unguarded peek behind the curtain as you get from the Kardashians these days. This producer that met Kim had just found her really interesting and like wanted to shoot with her. So she, they came and Kim was like, can we come to the store? They came to the store and then the girl was like, oh my God, you and your sisters, like this is everything. So then we started trying to pitch a show like the sisters, you know? And then I remember we went to E, we went to everything. I think like it wasn't, it, no one like wanted it or something. <laughs> After word from Dina Katz, Elliot took a meeting with the family and came out convinced they were something. They put on a show in the room, snarking at each other, being generally outrageous. It's like the Hollywood Brady Bunch, you know, on steroids. They were in the Hollywood world. They were a blended family. They had all these dynamics, you know, this this male figure with all these women, these beautiful girls who were, they were saying, we dating, we date black guys. Like, that was their thing, you know, and they would talk about it. Yikes. And also, see last episode for more on that fraught racial dynamic. The famous quote I always say, which is just because it's so funny and and prophetic. You know, Chris Jenner pulled me aside and thanked me for the meeting, and and she said, "Let me just say, you know, we should do this. I, you know, be great with you and Ryan E." And I said, "Oh yeah, I I love I love meeting you, and you know, I can't wait to see what we can do with it." And she said, let me just tell you one little thing about our family. Shit happens to us. Shit always happens to us. And if you do this reality show with us, I promise you shit will happen. No truer words have ever been spoken. The rest, as we know, was history. And a whole lot of people might argue that Kris Jenner helped make shit happen to the Kardashians. But it wasn't inevitable that they would become the much-hated, much-watched icons of the reality era. The family cannily used tabloid reporting on their personal lives to fuel the show's storylines. And editors were grateful. Here's Jared Shapiro. What did cooperation look like with those people? God, it was a blessing. Whereas you had the door slammed in your face. You know, I don't think Jennifer Aniston's publicist in the... 13 year, I never think I ever spoke to him on the phone once in the 13 years that we were doing this. And then with the reality stars, they'll get on the phone with you and text with you all night long and call you whenever you want. And you could work on stories and headlines and news with them and they tell you gossip about their co-stars or their friends or this and that. And you were just creating all these storylines with them. For example, Jared remembered when Kim Kardashian was going to file for divorce in 2011 from her then-husband, NBA player Chris Humphreys. It had been only 72 days since their televised wedding. Life and Style knew all of this was happening, but Chris Humphreys didn't. So we actually knew where Chris Humphreys was, and he was at a gym working out in Minnesota, and we sent paparazzi there to wait for him to come out of the gym. We also sent a reporter to go work out on the treadmill next to him. And when the TMZ story hit, he was on the treadmill running and didn't know it. And our reporter was texting back to us. I'm watching him right now. He has no idea he's wearing his wedding ring. And then he walks out of the gym and he sees our photographers and he waves. And he's got his wedding ring on. And we're just sitting there in the room, the newsroom, being like, I can't believe this guy doesn't know this is happening. So it just became... Um, you know, working with these reality stars 
you just got a better sense of, of the game a little bit more. There was a lot more coordination. Never before have characters on TV reaped so much personal profit from 20 to 40 minutes a week on television. Well, maybe I'm speaking too soon. Who will succeed? Who will fail? And who will be The Apprentice? Listen, I don't want to bring you down by talking about politics, but there's no way to get around the Trump connection to 2000s popular culture. His presence is always lurking. His friendship and influence on Paris Hilton was formative as she created her public image. Trump was always a New York tabloid figure, but The Apprentice was a genuine reality show hit for NBC. It ran for 13 years. It generated spinoffs and, as you certainly know, raised Trump's profile. The Kardashians had a similar rise to fame and power. They used their TV fame to sell lip kits and shapewear. Kim even appeared on The Apprentice to sell her perfume line. Trump used his fame to eventually sell the American people on the idea of him as president. Here's Peter Grossman. If someone is repeatedly put on TV and said, they're a successful businessman, it just becomes the truth. And people start to believe it. And it doesn't matter if it's real or people don't want to be bogged down with like the facts of, oh, well, sure, maybe this, this, this make that completely not the case, but I saw it on TV. And it doesn't surprise me that we ended up with a president who wasn't at all what the image was supposed to be. You might call the comparison facile, but then again, Kim and Trump had a summit at the White House in 2020. What's that if not the meeting of two powerful figures propelled to their pinnacle by the most populous force imaginable, trash TV? Laugh all you want, but Kim got people out of jail. Ten months after their meeting, Trump would use his TV powers to foment a riot and try to overturn the results of the election he'd just lost. Celebrities wanting to run for political office is nothing new. See Ronald Reagan and Arnold Schwarzenegger. But the reality star has a strange advantage in politics. They can be judged differently than a regular old actor. The public feels they already know them, warts and all. That's what happened with Trump. He was seen as sui generis, not to be held to the same standards as normal politicians or even normal people. When he did something bad, It was all part of a spectrum, Trump being Trump. And we all knew what that meant because he'd been on TV for so long. You didn't even really need to define the term. Who knows what Kim and her family will do with their TV fame, their ubiquity. It's sort of hard to imagine them riding off into the sunset. What will be their endgame? Kim keeps talking about, like, finally taking the bar and becoming a lawyer, and she's an advocate for all these people who have been wrongfully imprisoned, and that's really cool, but it's like, well, what are you going to do with this? Because I know you well enough to know that you're not just doing this out of, out of the goodness of your heart, which I'm sure that's, like, a significant percentage of it, but, like, you're going to monetize this in some way, and what way is this going to be, and how well will it be received? That's Bobby Finger. He and Lindsay Weber host a popular podcast called Who Weekly that's all about D-list celebrities, the kind of people that the reality TV era made a part of tabloid culture. Here's Lindsay. 
But I think also Kim saw kind of the the changing nature of culture where it's like, oh, we, you know, we're more charitable. We want to really give back. We want to, people wanted to see them give back, right? So what's more giving back aside from just giving money, which they have done vaguely, than literally getting your law degree like your father did. And what's hilarious is her father got OJ out of prison, but she is like getting actual prisoners out of uh, prison that have wrongfully been put in prison. So she saw like the twist on that, that would be the kind of the version of that would be for our culture, like what we're what we're concerned about, what we care about. So it is just fascinating to see them almost predict uh, and predict correctly in many ways the shift of of culture and how they can still be a part of it. What even is it anymore? What does it take to stay in the fame game these days? The Kardashians will continue to find out. They left E, but they're heading to Hulu with a new show set to premiere this year. At least one famous person, well, kind of famous, misses the old-school fame hierarchy fostered by the tabloids. Spencer told me Uber celebrity is so much harder to come by these days. The checks are smaller, and the constant buzz of photos and posts make it hard to break out of the noise. Now, it's impossible to get in tabloids because everyone does is their own paparazzi. If you look at any magazine, it's just an Instagram photo, credit Instagram You know, so the game is why are they buying a photo of Spidey from a pap when you have Jennifer Garner literally showing you in a kitchen or or Kate Hudson literally like in her underwear, like in a in a robe. Like these are even like you look at some of these photos, you're like, oh, my God, like like that's a I wouldn't think you'd give that for free on Instagram. Like I would have made 20 grand back in the day if I were you for that. Spencer, ever pragmatic is dumbfounded that these A-listers wouldn't try to sell these intimate moments. He basically says behavior like this upset the balance in the tabloid universe. They murked it. Celebrities ruined the game with, like, they should have been the old-school celebrity fame was to keep the, you know, they started losing to Kim and the, the reality stars, the mainstream, like, I'm too cool energy, so they had to, they... They went too big, though, by, like, posting so much of their intimate lives and doing all this when they should have, like, brought it in a little bit so that the paparazzi game could have stayed in business. Like, they murdered the tabloid game. Video killed the radio star, and Instagram killed the movie star. So what's left? We'll tackle that next week on our last episode. What is celebrity now that the stars want to be just like us? As crazy it might sound, Donald Trump was the last star we had, really. Somebody who could collectively bind us, maybe not in appreciation. You know, everyone's a paparazzi these days. They're going to post it on their Instagram story, their Snapchat, their Facebook, their Twitter immediately. So it makes it really hard for 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 entertainment outlets to break a story and, and also sell magazines. The internet is legitimately all haters now, and everybody that films themselves thinks they should be famous more than in the history of the world. Just Like Us, The Tabloids That Changed America was written and reported by me, Claire Malone, with story editing by Amanda Dobbins. The show was executive produced by Juliet Littman and Sean Fennessy. Our producers are Amanda Dobbins, Kaya McMullen, and Vikram Patel. Sound design and engineering by Hansdale Shee. The music is from Epidemic Sound and Blue Dot Sessions. Copy editing was done by Craig Gaines and fact-checking by Juliana Ress. 
Our art director is David Shoemaker. Illustration by Michael Weinstein. Thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.